Today, Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. We need to give our energy to the dancers of peace and to the creators of peace who, who, whose, whose imagination we should not prescribe in any way. From our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, listen today for voices of people who are working for peace around the globe. And I tried to communicate with him because I know at the end, even if he told me this is the army and there's no humanity, in some point he's a person, he's a human, and he will think about it. I know that every person has a human being inside his heart. If you listen to somebody about a controversial issue like war, they'll walk away from the conversation and they might say, wow, those peace people, we don't see eye to eye, but they are really nice people. That person actually listened to me. And the key to listening is you have to have empathy. Stay tuned for Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. I'm Paul Ingalls, producer and co-host of Peace Talks Radio, a radio series and website totally devoted to programs about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Today, another in our occasional series of programs that bring together a season's worth of highlights from our shows. Engaging conversations and topics worth revisiting that we'll excerpt today, starting with our talk with James O.D., a former top name in Amnesty International and former president at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, who more recently has written books like Creative Stress and Cultivating Peace, and is leading workshops on peace, including How to Become a Peace Ambassador. I asked James O.D., what's the main takeaway that he hopes those who take such a workshop leave with? The sense that we have moved uh, the peace movement in a whole new direction and that it's uh, not your father's peace movement or your mother's peace movement. Everyone can participate within their own context as teachers, as students, as social workers, as psychologists. So we're no longer screaming at the gates in a sense. We've We've breached the walls and we're now working inside the system so that the big theme is how do we create a culture of peace and how do we do that from the inside out. You actually have a a document online that I've seen, a multi-point document that reads something like a pledge, a pledge of, of commitment to what it'll take for an individual to truly become a peace ambassador. The whole document, I Am a Peace Ambassador, is about the movement away from finger-pointing, judgmental polarization into working inside solutions. It is the movement that says, let's look at the problems and the root causes of those problems from a systemic point of view and give as much insight as we can into those problems, but hold our best energy for the solutions, move towards those creative solutions. So uh, the, the challenge is not to have the problem eat away at your energy system. And now we're sophisticated enough to look at our our energy system in a way that even I, earlier in my Amnesty International years, didn't do self-care. I burnt out. You know, I was filled with moral outrage and righteousness. And that modality is what we're talking about changing, moving away from that kind of activism to a new activism sourced in this inner wisdom process 
and outer creative social action and that does require the ability to speak truth to power. We're not leaving those big issues behind. We're reframing them in a new way. It still sounds like a tall order when you say do this culture-wide. Where does it start? Well, where does it end is a better question, and we can get back to where does it start, because unless you have a vision, you will be wandering around reframing your approach to this and that problem. So uh, every great peacemaker and leader starts with that vision. Wilberforce started with the vision of the end of slavery, the abolition of slavery. And there were many tactical ways that he had to you know, change strategy and tactics, but he, he held the vision. So I hold a vision that's an extraordinarily large vision about peace on earth. And I say, there, is, there are ways to begin with it. And so that's the end goal. It is peace on earth. It is that large. It is tackling the deep cynicism that obstructs that. But here's how we do it. We begin with looking at where our own issues are transmitted to others. Because the intergenerational transmission of wounding is the singular cause of violence to the next generation. And we're, we all get wounded. You know, if you look, I did a workshop recently. 30 out of 40 people had had some kind of sexual molestation or serious sexual abuse as children. That wound, if that wound is transmitted to the next generation, you have other cycles of perpetration and violence. But what was very heartening to me was, admittedly, they were coming to a workshop I'd convened on peace and healing, but these were people who were consciously interrupting that wounding. Now take that to scale. Now imagine how we we look at all of the strategies and tactics to interrupt the transmission of violent wounding and perpetration on planet Earth. And, and what will arise in humanity in the absence of those forms of per perpetration. Wave after wave of consciousness, I think, is growing in the so-called average person. Mm. But then at the end, as a practical matter, at the end of a peace ambassador training, what is the final invitation or challenge to the students that have taken those 16 weeks? What we try to do is activate people to release their essential qualities because that's the key. It's not what my design is for you to do, what I think you ought to be doing for peace. This reframing of peace around you know, my essential qualities, what are my gifts? Maybe it's poetry, maybe it's dancing, maybe it's, it's wildly different than I could ever imagine doing. That's what you should be doing for peace. You should be releasing that sense of your qualities. That's where the energy will pick up, the connectivity will pick up, and you will be creatively engaged in, in that culture of peace that we're trying to frame, that you'll be living out your responsibility to do something rather than pointing the finger and saying, whose rights have been violated? Why have they been violated? Who's wrong here? Who's to blame? Some of that work has to be done in time, naming the, the problem and understanding the problem. 
We need to give our energy to the dancers of peace and to the creators of peace who, whose, whose imagination we should not prescribe in any way. James O'Dee, author of Cultivating Peace and leader of the workshops entitled How to Become a Peace Ambassador. On this edition of Peace Talks Radio, listening back to our programs released in 2012, we'll hear how some of those dancers of peace are offering their particular skills to make a more peaceful world. Like former Army Captain Paul Chappelle, a West Point graduate and veteran of the Iraq War, who after leaving the service, decided to devote his efforts to writing books and speaking about peace and serving as peace leadership director for the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation. Suzanne Kreider interviewed Paul Chappelle. Paul, you've got an interesting strategy because you were in the service, but it's not like you rejected your experience. So, for example, in your book, you, you write about the warrior ethos, which you studied at West Point. Can you tell us what that is and how that's built into your peaceful revolution? Yeah, the Army's warrior ethos is I will always place the mission first. I will never accept defeat. I will never quit. I will never leave a fallen comrade. And I saw how so many of the ideals I learned in the military actually apply to waging peace, and how many of the warrior ideals necessary for warfare are also necessary for waging peace. If you look at Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr. or Albert Schweitzer or Buddha or Socrates, they had a lot of those warrior ideals. And Gandhi even said, I am a soldier, but I am a soldier of peace. And I think that was one of the most surprising parts of my personal change in viewpoint was how I felt like West Point in many ways actually encouraged me to pursue this path of peace. And you can read these anti-war quotes from General MacArthur. There's numerous anti-war quotes from General Eisenhower, General Omar Bradley, who were also West Point graduates. So there is this tradition of this anti-war viewpoint. And there's a great quote from General MacArthur where General MacArthur said, the soldier above all other people prays for peace, for he must suffer and bear the deepest wounds and scars of war. When I describe your book, Peaceful Revolution, to people, many of them are confused when I say he wants to end all war. Some folks are skeptical. How do you know that the end of war is possible? Well, I can relate to that viewpoint because I used to be very skeptical as well, and I'm still skeptical, I think. But when I began to study military history and learn about war from the military perspective, I saw the overwhelming evidence that human beings are not naturally violent. And we can see how war actually forms and how it spreads and how it damages economies, nations, and the planet. And also the fact that so much change has happened, which we often don't recognize. For example... 500 years ago, things such as democracy, the right to vote, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, women's and civil rights virtually did not exist anywhere on the planet. And 200 years ago, Napoleon had overthrown the democratic government in France, and the only democracy in the world was the U.S. But we weren't a democracy if you were African American. We weren't a democracy if you were female. We weren't a democracy if you were white unless you owned land in most places. And so there has been dramatic change. The difference between those issues and the issue of war, not only is it a moral issue, but it's also an issue that threatens human survival. And I think the urgency of the issue, along with what we know now about human nature, about human beings being not naturally violent and how we can actually have more effective ways to solve conflicts, 
gives me a lot of hope that we can end all war. Paul, your book describes seven muscles that we need to develop in order to end war. And the muscles are like weapons of peace. They're hope, empathy, appreciation, conscience, reason, discipline, and curiosity. With empathy, if we think about our listeners, and let's say they want to dedicate four hours on a Saturday afternoon to ending war, what are two specific action steps they could do to strengthen the muscle of empathy? I think that empathy has to be strengthened through training and through practice. And one example of how to strengthen it is I think that so much of the dialogue in our country is very divisive and polarizing and demonizing of each each side. And one thing I explain to people, especially when I do this peace leadership training, is try to imagine yourself talking to somebody who has the complete opposite viewpoint of you. And how would you not only have empathy for that person, how would you not get angry? How would you not get angry? How would you not lose your temper? And how would you even have empathy? And that's a very difficult thing to do, especially when you're talking about a very controversial issue. And that's what King and Gandhi and Nelson Mandela and others were able to do so well. And so one thing I say, just a practical thing people can do, is if you're talking to anybody who has the opposing viewpoint, it is so important to listen and be respectful. If all you do is listen and be respectful, that is an important victory. Because I don't think there's ever been anyone in human history who has seriously said, I hate it when people listen to me. I hate it when people respect me. I can't stand it when people listen to me or respect me. Everybody likes to be listened to. Everybody likes to be respected. So when you listen to people and you are respectful, you make a very strong impression on them especially in a culture like ours where there is so little respect and so little listening. If you listen to somebody about a controversial issue like war, you have one viewpoint, they have the opposite viewpoint, and if you listen to that person, they'll walk away from the conversation and they might say, wow, those peace people, we don't see eye to eye, but they are really nice people. That person actually listened to me. And the key to listening is you have to have empathy. If you don't have empathy for somebody, you can't really hear what they're saying. Even if the person has the most outrageous viewpoint, you can imagine. If you empathize with a person, that's when you begin to understand where they're coming from. Because if you look at Martin Luther King Jr., he was getting dozens of death threats a day. His house was bombed. He was arrested multiple times. He was eventually killed. But you never saw him talk about the people who were oppressing him in this demonizing, dehumanizing way that you see liberals talk about conservatives and vice versa. And he had much more right to demonize his opponent. Or if you look at Frederick Douglass, who came out of slavery, you didn't hear him using that demonizing, dehumanizing language of white people. Or if you look at Gandhi, how he talked about the British, he didn't talk about the British in this demonizing way. And of course, he had much more right to because look at the conditions he was living in. Look at the conditions that King was living in. Or look at Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela was in jail for 27 years. And he was actually able to win the hearts and minds of some of his prison guards through having a respectful attitude toward them. So the thing about waging peace is that you respect them as a human being and you recognize that In this struggle, your opponent is ignorance, your opponent is hatred, your opponent is greed, your opponent is misunderstanding, and you want to attack their hatred and defeat it, you want to attack their ignorance, you want to attack 
their misunderstanding? And how do you do that effectively? And if you hate them back or if you demonize them, you actually magnify their hatred. And by respecting them, it opens a doorway where you can directly attack their hatred, attack their ignorance. And you can't convert everybody from that opposing point of view, but as King and Mandela and Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony and many many others showed, you can convert quite a number and enough to create critical mass in how people think. Paul Chappelle, West Point grad and Iraq war veteran and author of the book Peaceful Revolution, How We Can Create the Future Needed for Humanity's Survival. A nonprofit program called Creativity for Peace includes a camp experience in the high desert of New Mexico for adolescent girls from all sides in the Middle East conflict. At the annual camp, the girls speak their minds about their own suffering due to the hostilities there. Despite being taught to see the other as the enemy, they learn to get along and even be friends and learn important lessons in conflict resolution. Some of the girls stay with the program as they become young women, attending meetings back in their homelands and they have real chances to apply the lessons of the camp to their lives. Former campers Palestinian Joanna Galeb and Israeli Jew Mai Freed were back in New Mexico to help with the 2012 camp and talked with our Carol boss. First, here's Mai Freed. After the experience of camp, when I got back home, I went, I think maybe one year, I went for a few, like one, two meetings, and afterwards I I just stopped. And today I realized because it was too hard. What was hard? I think it was hard knowing what I knew and walking with this knowledge in my society with people that couldn't understand my side. It was just easier to stay on my family, friends, my society side, and to understand both sides. It was just too painful. The understanding of the other side that I brought back from camp and all the difficulties I had, like staying 100% in my side while I'm knowing what's going on in the other side. Um, and it was hard for me to stand in front of my friends, family, society, and and then and say, I have both sides in me. So I just didn't for a while. Were you able to reconcile that within yourself? For a while, no. For a while, no. But when I felt like it's just that I need to go back to that, I, I it, it's something that I owe to the, I say sometimes to the world. I have knowledge that is so important, and, and I wish that everyone in the world had this knowledge. So I think it's kind of my job to to spread it around. Well, I hear, I hear that you struggled within yourself. And after going through that, which sounds like a very important process, did you then take that and manifest it in your, in your daily life? Many times I try to show other sides. Sometimes my friends are, are crazy at me when they want me to take their side in some kind of incident and I'm just trying to show them that there is another side but but I really believe in that and and I think it affects people when they see somebody who's coming in peace and not in shouting and not in you're wrong I'm right just you're right and I'm right and it it makes difference it opens up people I'm gonna share a story that uh, happened with me like uh, this year I was with my dad uh, on my way to Ramallah, but there's a, a checkpoint, and uh, they stop us. And the soldier, when we like, when he check the car and check us and everything, he told me, "Your dad can pass, but you have to go back." 
And I try to talk to him that I always passed with my father from this way and everything is okay. And he said, okay, but today you can't pass. That's it. Don't uh, discuss more with me. And the people in the car, they were telling me, don't discuss with him. They will arrest you or something. And my dad keep telling me, no, Joana, just go back and don't uh, uh, discuss with the soldier. But suddenly I feel that I want really to discuss uh, with him because uh, like this is something that I really learned from Creativity for Peace, how to be honest and just speak what I'm thinking about, not just stay silent and do nothing. And I told him, uh, okay, I can't pass, but I always used to pass. It's more about humanity. And he like stay silent for like one minute and suddenly he answered me, this is army, there's no humanity in army. And But I felt that I really affect this person, this soldier, because like I felt in one moment he just keep silent and he think about it. Like I'm a civilian, I'm with my father. We were in our way to Ramallah. We has a meeting. We had a meeting, and he just preventing me for no reason. He checked my uh, bag and nothing in it. And then like after a long discussion like uh, discussion with him and argument i just passed and i did it but it was after a very long time it took me a lot but we passed at the end it sounds like one of the valuable things that um you took from your experience at creativity for peace is not only how to listen but how to speak yeah how to speak my mind even all the people in the car, they were in fear, like, Joanna, stop, don't talk to the soldier. He will arrest you or he will hit you or shoot you or something. And my dad was so afraid because, like, stop talking to him. But even that, I talk to him. He don't, like the soldier, he doesn't speak Arabic and I don't speak Hebrew. We, we talked in English. And I tried to communicate with him because I know at the end, even if he told me this is the army and there's no humanity, in some point he's a person, he's a human, and he will think about it. So beyond the face, beyond his eyes, you were able at that point to see a human being. Yeah. And this soldier who may have had a gun that he was holding. Because, like, I know that every person, like, has a human being inside his heart. But the situation make him be bad or think in this way. So I tried to talk to him about a human being because I know that when he will think about it, he will think in humanity or remember that there's something called humanity. And that's what I learned also from Creativity for Peace. So I want to ask both of you, do you, do you think, for example, how to listen and how to speak and being able to see, to see the humanity in, in the other, is, um, is that a pathway to peace? My Absolutely. When you learn to speak your truth, people are listening. When you try to speak peop like people's truth or like nation's truth and everybody has his own truth and just cause kind of like antagonism. But when you speak your own truth, people can notice that you're a human being and nobody, nobody can, can ignore that for the long term because everybody has this human being inside of him. So when you show that you are a human being, it's much, much easier to listen to you as a human being and, and to treat you better. And I think that that's, that's a little secret that many people don't know. They try to, to talk as if they're like representing a group or an idea, 
instead of just representing themselves. 23-year-old Israeli Jew Mai Freed, 22-year-old Palestinian Juana Galeb, talking with Carol Boss about how they applied lessons of the Creativity for Peace program that brought them and other youngsters from all sides of the Middle East conflict together. Ahead on this special edition of Peace Talks Radio, we'll hear how the famous peace symbol was created, how bringing better food to a neighborhood enhances peace there, and how a Republican and a Democrat actually agree on how to improve the tone of our rancorous political discourse. All after this break. This is Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special, made up of highlights from our programs that we produced in 2012. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. You can hear the entire programs from which these excerpts came by visiting our website, peacetalksradio.com, and seeking out the 2012 episodes from our Peace Talks episode archive section. There you'll find our show about how improving food security in communities can enhance peace. We spotlighted the work of The People's Grocery in West Oakland, California, where, says program director Nikki Henderson, years of so-called urban development had an unintended consequence of limiting access to good food sources for many of the neighborhoods. A lot of the development projects, not only in West Oakland, but across the country, kind of the rise of the urban inner city has a lot to do with the way that development projects happen in inner city communities and the entrance of freeways, the entrance of things like post offices and BART stations and all of the things that bar the community in on all sides and make it unattractive for certain industries to stay in. So once the industry leaves, you still have a large concentration of people that don't have access to basic things like grocery stores. So the supermarkets, once they left, they stayed away, which was really unfortunate. West Oakland has been called a food desert. Can you tell us what that means? Sure. And, you know, sometimes we don't like to use the phrase food desert because desert, a desert is actually a place with a lot of abundance. Um, they may not have a lot of water, but they do have critters and cacti and all kinds of wonderful things. So I think of it more as a food wasteland. And when we talk about that term, what we mean is a place that has limited access to fresh and healthy foods and not just limited access when it comes to distance, because there is a debate right now about whether food deserts actually exist, because people tend to actually live in close enough proximity to a grocery store to get there with the cars that they generally do have access to, even if they don't own. So we're not talking just about proximity. We're talking about the convergence of proximity to healthy food with affordability of that healthy food and accessibility when it comes to the type of healthy food. Because if you are a Vietnamese family and your healthy foods look very different than the USDA food pyramid, then you may not have very much access. 
Very often when you hear the word food desert, paired with that is food insecurity. Yes. How big a problem is this nationally? Oh, it's a very big problem nationally. I think there was a study done a little while ago that said something like one out of 10 people in the country, maybe even more than that, are food insecure. And that's a big deal, especially when you look at the fact that the most food insecure homes across the country, across the board, are African-American women-led homes. So this is a serious problem in communities of color, and especially with people with limited incomes. We've invited you to talk about this program on our show about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. How do you see the people's groceries work as making peace and reducing conflict in a community? Well, you know, when I ask people when they feel the most at peace, a lot of times the response I get back is when they're sharing a meal with a loved one. And I also feel like if you want to create peace, especially between two family members that may not be speaking to each other, You get them together over a meal. And I think that the act of eating food, but more importantly, sharing food, is a way to really create peace and inspire peacemaking among people who may be at conflict or who just want to build a deeper relationship with each other. And I also think that we have a couple of programs that are really specific to conflict resolution and building relationship. Well, in regards to the first thing you said about um people sharing a meal together and sitting down and eating. How does that relate in terms of what you do at People's Grocery? A majority of our work, I'd say, starts with community celebration. I mean, when I think about all of our programs, they're very wrapped up in community dinners and major events at our garden and weekly garden events. I think our first interaction with quite a few people in the community is come share some food with us. So then when we start talking about more abstract concepts like nutrition and diabetes and how much access you have to healthy food, you know, they have a mouthful of really good salad and they're much more <laughs> much more engaged in terms of having a conversation. When the People's Grocery was founded in West Oakland in 2002, it was with the understanding that the health and economy, the well-being, the quality of life of a community can be improved with access to nutritious food. What was the significance of making that connection? You know, when People's Grocery first started, I think there were a lot less healthy foods activities happening there than there are now. We do have a small cooperative. We as in West Oakland. West Oakland now has a small foods cooperative, and there's a small farmer's market. There's a few urban gardens. But the situation was really dire 10 years ago. There weren't any grocery stores. There's still not a full-service grocery store. And the kinds of food people were eating and sharing was destructive, frankly, to their bodies and to the community. And so really thinking about a way to not just improve the economic vitality of the community through development, but to do that in a way that actually improves people's health at the same time, food was a natural nexus between those two. And so that was why the connection, I think, was made. A lot of times, if you live in a community, and I myself am no exception, before I started People's Grocery, the community that I lived in, I knew a lot about what wasn't there, but I didn't have context when it came to the social determinants of health or the political economies of food or how food even travels in a city. I think I still struggle with that one. But the more that you learn about things like that, the more you can 
transform the in the, the day-to-day information that you know into something that would be useful for making governance decisions. And that's really what we try to do. How does it make for a more cohesive community? Well, the more that people know enough context to be informed about governance decisions, the more people take ownership of the place where they live. And the more you take ownership of the place where you live, the more you protect it. And I, I really feel like the more you protect it, the more violence goes down, the more domestic abuse goes down, and the more that the things that we do to ourselves actually decrease. We have enough problems with things that people do to us. We need not be perpetuating some of our own issues that we currently are. Nikki Henderson of West Oakland's People's Grocery, where food access is the focus to help promote peace and security in the neighborhood. On one of our programs, we looked into the history of the well-known peace symbol. You know, the circle, the line in the middle, and the two short lines coming down at an angle from that center line. Where did that thing come from, anyway? It was a British graphic designer who approached a committee planning a 1958 Ban the Bomb protest march in England with his idea. He comes knocking on their door and says, you know, I think it's important that we design some graphics um, that identifies your group. This is Ken Colesman, who co-wrote the book Peace, the Biography of a Symbol. His name was Gerald Holtham. He was an Englishman, around 40 years old, and uh, he created this very simple symbol, and he got the, the Direct Action Committee approval for it. And Gerald Holtham's first design I read in your book was was a cross, but that churches resisted the idea of him using a cross. Yeah, he first went to the uh, the Christian churches, and they uh, they didn't want to have anything to do with the march. He thought a cross would work, but then uh, since they they didn't uh, approve of what he was doing, he came. He took the uh, cross and just kind of dropped the arms on it and drooped the arms and came up with this design and uh, put a circle around it and. It just so happened that the drooping arms stood for N in semaphore letters, semaphore language, and the vertical line, D, for uh, disarmament, nuclear disarmament. Holtham seemed to think this thing through and even predict how well it would do as an emblem for a movement, uh, showing well in marches and on uh, TV and film, didn't he? He sure did, and I want to read you something that uh, he wrote me in uh, the mid-70s. This is right when he uh, created the symbol, and I'll read what he wrote. He said, The validity and certainty of this symbol was immediately fixed in my mind. In the morning, I made a drawing of it on a small piece of paper the size of a sixpence and pinned it on to my jacket and forgot it. Then he said, in the evening, I went to the post office. The girl behind the counter looked at me and said, what is that badge that you are wearing? I looked down in some surprise and saw the ND symbol pinned on my lapel. I felt rather strange and uneasy wearing a badge. I didn't like badges and had always avoided wearing them. Oh, that is the new peace symbol, I said. How interesting. Are there many of them? He says, no, only one, 
but I expect there will be quite a lot before long. And the march started April 4th, 1958. 5,000 people gathered in London, and it was a four-day march to Aldermaston. And that was the beginning. Could you open your book to page 41 and read a little bit about the march? Okay, here we are. Nearing Aldermaston's Atomic Wessons Research Plant, the Corps marchers were joined by hundreds more. Describing the historic event, Norman Moss wrote, By the end of the march on Easter Monday, 10,000 people were standing in a wet and chilly field opposite the barbed wire perimeter of the Aldermaston plant to hear the speeches. Something new had happened. The Ban the Bomb movement in Britain was a unique phenomenon and an important one. There had been nothing else like it anywhere else in the world. It is a special product of the British circumstance and the British conscience. So on Easter Monday, we left Reading for Aldermaston, where the bombs are made. The march seemed endless now, bigger than we dared to hope, big enough to make even a politician think. During the march, uh, he had, uh, Holtram had designed these lollipops, and these were the symbol probably a, f- a foot wide on stakes. The people carried these with them, and it was very, very, very graphic. So, you know, something about the symbol that's so, so easy to identify it. And this, you know, he, as a graphic artist, he could see the power of this and how it could be set in people's minds. Many marchers carry the symbol of the campaign for nuclear disarmament, the semaphore signal ND. They are pledged to the common cause of mankind. Each, by marching, denies the growing fear that the people of the world are mere puppets, incapable of influencing events by their personal actions. They know that a nuclear war will mean suicide for Britain, that nuclear weapons are no defense, that there can be no victors, only vanquished. They march for Britain to give a lead to the nations of the world. They ask for an act of greatness. Ken Colesman, Gerald Holtam certainly lived long enough to see a symbol proliferate. Uh, Do you know how he felt about it, seeing it all over the world and in so many contexts? Well, I know uh, he was certainly happy about it, but... uh, I don't have anything in writing from him that specifically says he was jumping with joy, but I know he was, you know, such a peace man that he, he I'm sure he was very happy about it. And, you know, thinking of uh, the symbol, I call it the chameleon-like symbol because it kept, you know, originally it was uh, anti-nukes uh, and then it went to anti-war, the Vietnam War, then the Greenpeace picked it up and used a symbol and added their little bit to it, and civil rights, uh, the Women's Strike for Peace, all these organizations, uh, even re- more recently Code Pink have, has used a symbol. And so I don't know if he thought back then if that many people and that many organizations would pick it up and use it, but it certainly proved to be a very powerful image. Ken Colesman is the author of the book Peace, the Biography of a Symbol. 
I'm Paul Ingalls, and you're listening to a Peace Talks radio special, presenting compelling moments from past shows. I had a conversation with a former Afghan ambassador about essentials of diplomacy and how we might find more peace around the inevitability of our deaths and the deaths of others. All after this break. This is Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. I'm Paul Ingalls. We're spotlighting our 2012 episodes today. 2012, of course, an election year. And like so many election seasons, it was rancorous and divisive. Not peaceful, certainly. For the second time in the history of our series, we did a show entitled Seeking Civility in Political Discourse and brought together a sitting Democratic congressman, Tim Ryan from Ohio, and a former Republican congresswoman, Connie Morella of Maryland, to speculate why political discourse had gotten so nasty. We found some surprising agreement between these two, anyway. Tim Ryan first. And then there's also the issue of um, the redistricting process, that we have districts have become either really, really red or really, really blue. Gerrymandering, when you leave every 10 years up to the political bodies to carve the lines that uh, members of Congress will be looking at and will have to adhere to for a re-election, that's pretty dangerous stuff. I mean, you're putting it into the hands of those people of one particular party, whichever is the majority party, to do it. And so not many members of Congress have to come down to uh, Washington, D.C., from wherever they're from in the country, and actually look to make compromise. They They are more concerned about protecting either their left flank or their right flank in a primary election as opposed to having a general election where they need to appeal to a broader audience. Look at the number of people who vote in primaries, a very small number. And they have traditionally been those on two extremes, extremes left, extremes right, and they vote. So you can have the candidates chosen for important positions chosen by a very small number of people who are not thinking about a centrist point of view, who are not thinking about compromise, but are thinking their way or the highway. So I think something should be done to um, get more people to vote in primaries. And I think that's hurt it. And then, you know, the gasoline on the fire is, in the last uh, year or so, has been Citizens United. The uh, Supreme Court decision, um, Citizens United, did not help campaign finance reform at all. On the contrary, we have uh, a, a minute number of entities that are billionaires that are actually putting money into elections. Uh, 
far, far more than all of the individuals combined. And so if we could do something with regard to campaign finance reform in some way, I think that indeed would help. How do you make headway on the redistricting issue? Well, we're doing it in Ohio now. There's a there's a, a group that's uh, putting it on the ballot for kind of what happened in California, where you have a, a citizens board that will uh, you know redraw the congressional districts based on uh, you know having to be contiguous and having to be uh, community based and some other you know media markets, those kinds of things. It really would allow you know, a, a, a more balanced approach and having citizens involved. So if the Republicans are in charge, they're not gerrymandering. And if the Democrats are in charge, they're not gerrymandering. You ha- actually have citizens who are saying, this is really a, a district that makes sense. Uh, and it may be closer to 50-50 than 60-40 or 70-30. And, uh, it, and that can be very, very helpful. And other states, I think, need to do that as well. Former eight-term Republican Congresswoman Connie Morella of Maryland is devoting much of her time these days to finding solutions to the rancor in our political conversation. You know, one of the things that I continue to think is important is to, to get the leadership of both parties to care about this, to know that this really will enhance um, the um, image of the parties in the minds of the people. You can disagree, but you can be friends. Uh, disagreement is healthy, and if you can respect your colleague, and if you know your colleague, you've got a good chance of respecting the colleague, then you can work out the differences. So I submit that more needs to be done to get members to know each other, to respect each other, and then I think they'll be able to work better together. George Washington, when he was 16 years of age, he wrote down rules of civility, and one of them is uh, one that I think is particularly appropriate. He said, every action done in company ought to be done with some sign of respect to those who are present. So I say that because if you want to look at what it means, it's that we should respect each other. If we respect each other, there's an opportunity for trust, and then there's an opportunity for working together, working out differences. If we respect each other, then civility is part of it, uh, and I think we can get more done. So good old George Washington, when he was 16 years of age, copied down one of the best rules of civility and, and good behavior. Former Maryland Congresswoman Connie Morella and earlier Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan on how to lay a path toward more civility in our political discourse. Also in 2012, we had a chance to talk with Omar Samad, a former Afghan ambassador to both France and Canada, who, when Suzanne Kreider spoke to him, was working as an Afghanistan senior expert at the U.S. Institute of Peace in Washington, D.C. Mr. Samad told us what he'd learned about being an effective diplomat bridging differences in cultures. What a diplomat does, first of all, is get to know his or her environment. And that environment means not only history, but it means society, it means economy, and everything that you know makes up a country, as complex as it is. And no one should claim to know everything about a country or be an expert in anything. I think that you know the boundaries of knowledge are beyond our reach, and, and, and it's a good thing. So, so what you have to do is, uh, you know, sort of strengthen your knowledge base, then 
then your job is to connect. And, and that's where cr- cross-culturalism comes into play, where you, using your cultural baggage and whatever makes you culturally ident- identifiable, are seen and perceived by the other side as being different. And of course, you go in and trying to tell people that you're not so different, actually, that we have a lot to share and a lot in common. And a diplomat's job is actually to create those bonds and those bridges and those connectivities and those areas where we come together, whether as human beings or as entities, whether national entities or cultural entities or ethnic entities, whatever it might be. And so you have to explain. And I come from a, cu- from a culture, from a society, and from a background that is already complex. Afghanistan, you know, is uh, a multi-ethnic society, multilingual society. Uh, it's, uh, it has 5,000 years of history. It's an old ancient land. It has gone through a lot. And so you have to explain that to people. And Canada was extremely interested in what was happening in Afghanistan because Afghanistan became Canada's number one foreign policy issue while I was there as ambassador. And I made a point of being the voice in the face of Afghanistan. And so I engaged the Canadians to the, to the extent that I could at all levels, at all levels, from grassroots to the top of the government. And I think that that's I, what I believe is a diplomat's job. But while doing so, you also bring up issues. You deal with all kinds of events that take place on a daily basis, good and bad, policy issues, decisions that have to be taken, strategic decisions as well as tactical decisions. And a diplomat's job, a negotiator's job, is of course uh, working within the confines of another country is to respect the limits that exist without stepping overboard, but offer the viewpoint that is necessary. Ambassador Samad, I wanted to ask you who some of the experts in diplomacy and international relations are who you really respect, but I'm also curious what you learned from your father about diplomacy. I think that integrity is very important. I think that being purposeful in life, having a purpose, a cause, is important. Believing in good and bad, uh, believing in doing good versus avoiding the bad is important. For others, for your country, for your nation, for your community, for your family, in negotiations, you have to be fair and you have to be just. I think those are some characteristics. And and I know that some people may think, well, diplomats are probably not the fairest of people or, uh, or, or negotiators sometimes try to get the best deal out of something. And it's true, they do. But at the same time, if you come at the, at the negotiating table or as a diplomat, you give a sense to the other side that you understand them and that you have a sense of justice and a sense of equality uh, and fairness, then you already have at some level succeeded in starting negotiations on the right foot. Former Afghani ambassador and an Afghanistan senior expert for the U.S. Institute of Peace, Omar Samad, talking with our Suzanne Kreider. We'll close today's show with an excerpt from a program I hosted not long after I'd lost two family members. My aunt and my mother died within two weeks of each other at the ages of 90 and 87, respectively, in the year 2011. I'd learned some personal lessons about finding peace around those passings, and then sat down with three hospice experts who told me about other things we can all do to give both ourselves and our loved ones more peace of mind 
around these challenging passages. Corrine Trone and Denis Cope are heard in this excerpt. Miss Cope first talking about an end-of-life planning regimen called the Five Wishes. The Five Wishes, I think, is the most comprehensive of all the end-of-life care documents out there, simply because it's, it's it includes everything. It has the living will, and you get to talk about what you want done for you when you are faced with impending death. Do you want IVs? Do you want heroic measures? And you know, it details what those are. It also asks, who do you want as your durable power of attorney, which normally those are two separate documents. But And the durable power of attorney is the person who will make medical decisions for you in the case of incapacity to make those choices. And you certainly need to have had a conversation with whoever you appoint to say, these are my wishes. And within the five wishes, you go through what you would like. And then you get to talk about how you want to be cared for, not just what don't you want, but what do you want? And so you get to talk about, I would like somebody there, I would like this type of music, I would like, and and I have to say, there is a part of me that has talked about how the five wishes, for me, it was clearly written by a living person and not a dying person, because it talks about how people want massage and want their hands held and want this and and constant presence. And what I have seen over time, that as we are truly in our dying process, we want to be less interacted with. We may want presence in the room, and sometimes we don't even want that. The minute presence leaves the room, somebody goes out to answer the door, fix a meal, that's when we can get out of our bodies. So... Um, it's often filled out from the eyes of the living who project what it must, they might want when they're dying, and the dying really have a different experience of what they want. Um, But it is a way of looking at all the aspects of dying, the legal, the personal, the familial, for for want of a better word to me, if we don't have a blood family that we want involved, we certainly have our family, the people we're in closest relationship with. How do we want them to be with us? And how do we want our community to be there? So it covers all those aspects. And it's one document, you sign it, and you have it witnessed. There has to be a witness for it. It doesn't have to be notarized. It's just comprehensive. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'll share a personal story. Um, my folks are extremely practical. They had an answers book, you know, literally a book that they bought and said answers on the cover that had you know the finances, the car, the this, the that. But when my mom passed away, we weren't immediately able to find anything about her services. Uh, and so that was a riddle that lasted for a couple of days. But then, sure enough, uh, there were some folded papers tucked in the back of one of the pages in the answers book that hadn't come out that had everything. It had the hymns she wanted. It had uh, some passages of prose that she thought would be helpful. And the most helpful one, actually, was this little one that she had copied. Somebody may have sent to her. I don't know. And all it said in her handwriting and pencil on the top was for family. It's attributed to Canon Henry Scott Holland, 1847 to 1918, Canon of St. Paul's Cathedral. Death is nothing at all. I've only slipped away into the next room. I am I and you are you. 
whatever we were to each other, that we are still. Call me by my old familiar name. Speak to me in the easy way you always used to. Put no difference in your tone. Wear no forced air of solemnity or sorrow. Laugh as we always laughed at the little jokes we played and enjoyed together. Play, smile, think of me, pray for me. Let my name be ever the household word that it always was. Let it be spoken without effort, without the ghost of a shadow in it. Life means all that it ever meant. It is the same as it ever was. There is absolute, unbroken continuity. What is death but a negligible accident? Why should I be out of mind because I'm out of sight? I'm waiting for you for an interval, somewhere very near, just around the corner. All is well. This brought great comfort, I know, to my father, uh, because he cut it out and put it on his desk, and he's been writing letters to us kids every week since we went away to college. And now he signs everyone all as well. <laughs> and, and, and to me, I know that that made just a huge difference to him. Corrine Trone? Thanks. Yeah. I was thinking also about this piece that, you know, humans are inherently resilient. There is a resilience there that means that we can get through even the hardest times. And, and sort of knowing that even as you're in the deep depths of things can sometimes be helpful. That, you know, the sun does come up the next day. Sometimes that's the craziest feeling, in fact, is that everything looks so normal on the outside when everything is so totally changed inside. But that engaging with that fact that the day, you know, comes, every new day comes, can actually help to move forward. All Things Must Pass from George Harrison, always a favorite of mine, and it actually had become a favorite of my mom's as well. Again, all of the complete programs from which these excerpts came can be heard through our website, peacetalksradio.com. Follow the episode's link to the 2012 season for more. PeaceTalksRadio.com is also where you can hear all the programs in our series going back to 2002. Sign up for a podcast or our monthly email update. You can order CDs and find out also how you can contribute to the work of our nonprofit organization, Good Radio Shows Incorporated, to support the continuance of Peace Talks Radio. Additional support comes from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Allie Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Carol Boss and Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening. Oh,